John 3, we're going to be back in John chapter 3 as we finish up this chapter today as we look into another great portion of Scripture as we're talking and walking through the Gospel of John verse by verse. You know, really, as we look at it, in the world we live in, the fact of the matter is we are people who love comparisons. Have you noticed that? We love to compare things. We do. It's all the way around us. It's in us. We like to compare our clothes, our shoes, our houses, our cars. We compare our jobs and uh, our looks, whatever it may be. And then we level assessments about people based on the comparisons that we make. Then we say things like, hey, you can't trust that guy. He drives a Subaru, you know, things like that. Or she's driving a Prius. Be careful there. And so we level with someone based on their car, whatever, based upon what they do. Guys will compare biceps. Uh, Ladies will compare clothing. People will compare their careers. We do it all the time. You know, really, if you look at this, all you have to do is go to a preschool open house, and this is so very true. What happens is you gather in the preschool open house for Parents' Day. You're in there. You start talking to another parent. Well, when, when did she start walking? And they'll start walking about a month ago. Yeah, well, how old is that? Well, she's 11 months. So she started walking at 10 months. Well, we live in a world, right? Isn't that true? We level assessments in our lives. We talk to people. We live in a world of comparisons, and we all do it. We're all prone to it because it's in our human nature. And But we have to realize this, it's a trap. It's a trap. We're prone to it because our culture breeds it, our media around us, it feeds it. So many of us base our identities on those comparisons in our lives. And so how we see ourselves and our families and how we evaluate life is all based many times on comparison. And uh, we even compare what is so debilitating to us, like, hey, like, uh, wow, they're doing that over there, and wow, we're not even doing that. That's incredible. And, And what's very destructive, even in our own lives, is we'll compare our giftings with somebody else's giftings. And there is a real trap in that that is set. Because it's so debilitating because it's then we take our eyes off of Jesus and we direct our focus inward. See, it it puts our eyes on ourselves and what it does, it keeps us from seeing all that God's doing around us. Have you found that to be true? That we're just trying to compare ourselves with somebody else or the next best. So what happens is it blinds us in our understanding of seeing Jesus in our daily walk with him. The problem is comparison is really all about me when we do it. And in John chapter 3, we're going to meet two groups of baptizers. And the issue at the heart of these verses is the issue of identity. How we see ourselves in comparison, but also how we see ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus has just finished talking to Nicodemus. We spoke about that last week. And the scenario shifts to the Judean countryside where he begins and he's there with his disciples. They're baptizing in verses 22 through 36 for today. And so this is a series of unexpected events that come across the path of Jesus and his disciples. And from the start of this passage, tucked away 
in verse 22. I want us to draw attention to that. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. What you're going to see in the ministry of Jesus is that baptism plays a very large role in his life, but also he talks about it to us as believers in him. So that throughout the New Testament, what you see as you watch it, not only in Jesus, but as we go forward, after we respond to Jesus, people turning away from their sins, he says, there's an outward working that I want to see take place in you, and that is, I want you to be baptized, water baptism. See, the sign of life change is that we get baptized right away without hesitation. That's what happened in Jesus' day. People accepted Christ into their life. He said, without hesitation, I want you to be water baptized immediately. He says, that's a sign that your life has changed. And sadly, many people don't do that. They, they, for whatever reason, many times they'll wait, they'll prolong it, they'll reject it. But Jesus has commanded us to be baptized and Jesus demonstrates the importance of baptism in his early ministry. He's out in the Judean countryside. What does he do? He's baptizing with his disciples. Baptism is life-changing, isn't it? It is. Baptism is life-changing. And let me tell you something. The moment you receive water baptism is the moment you receive your ministry assignment. How many of you are with me today? The moment you receive water baptism is the moment you receive your ministry assignment. So if you got baptized and you're sitting on your hands and doing nothing for Jesus, that's the wrong understanding what scripture says. When you get baptized, you now have a ministry assignment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, John the Baptist is brought back into the story. Now look at verse 23 and 24. John was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. How many of you are thankful that water was plentiful there, right, when they're baptizing? And the people were coming and being baptized. So the scene is set. There's two groups of baptizers. Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. John and his disciples are baptizing. For some reason, all of this triggers what the ESV version calls a discussion. Some of you understand what a discussion is because the way this plays out many times in our homes is you're talking with your spouse and it becomes to elevated tones, right? And maybe you're talking about something about money or in your checkbook or your bank account. Who knows what it is? Probably you don't even remember what it was. And one of your kids comes to you and says, Mommy, why are you and Daddy fighting? I mean, come on, has that happened in your home? That's happened in all of our houses. Oh, honey, we're not fighting. We're having a discussion. But you're yelling at each other, right? And so the ESV calls this a discussion, but it's way bigger than that. And we look in the NIV, and the translators say it's an argument between some of Jesus' disciples and, certain, and a certain Jew. There's an argument that's developed between Jesus' disciples and a certain Jew. The New Living Translation goes a step further and says a debate broke out. So there's an all-out debate happening now that we see about baptism and John referring to baptism. And it sets up this dispute between two baptizing groups. And that's really kind of all we get here. But we're going to see how John handles this. In fact, 
we don't hear any more about what he said, what was argued about, what all the contention was, but John responded to it to his disciples because they come straight to John. They, then we're going to look at it in verse 26. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. It's kind of like, oh, look, Jesus, look, Jesus, he's baptizing, you know, and John, check this out, and everybody's going to him now. Can you believe this? So they're worried, they're worried something about this conversation that really works them up on the inside, and all of a sudden, somebody has gotten their attention to the fact that John's crowd is shrinking, and Jesus's crowd is growing, and they go straight to John with this, and we hardly know any of the further content about what was said in that, but we realize something takes place. This certain Jew had been over with Jesus, he had seen what's gone over there, and he comes over to John's camp and he starts talking to one of John's disciples. You know, God, didn't you see that big crowd that was with Jesus over there? I mean, really, man, there's a lot of people. What they're doing is awesome, and we're not doing that great now because our crowds are shrinking. And so with this conversation, you see a debate breaks out and what you'll notice is John takes the conversation in a totally different direction. Look at verse 27 through 30. Because John the Baptist is going to take it in a direction that has nothing to do with baptism at all and has everything to do with identity. It has everything to do with identity, not about water baptism. Namely, the question of, who is Jesus? Who is John? And what is John's response of what he sees happening in their ministry now that Jesus has come on the scene? Jesus' ministry is increasing. John's ministry is decreasing. John the Baptist moves the conversation, and he speaks very pointedly to the issue of how we see ourselves and should see ourselves as followers of Jesus, how we define who we are and what defines our identity. If there's ever been a day when the body of Christ and every believer need to find their identity in Jesus, it is today. Amen? Rather than getting your identity off what other people say about you, what they are saying, what they're not saying, whatever it may be, the body of Christ needs to find their identity in Jesus and him alone. If you believe it, say amen. amen. So it comes to three questions. Who is John? Who is Jesus? And what is John's response to the picture of Jesus we see in this passage? Who is John? Well, what does this passage tell us about John the Baptist? Well, we've already met John in chapter 1 a few weeks ago. We met him there, this first chapter. We, we did get some details of his life. It's amazing. We found out who he was and also who he wasn't. That we get the details of chapter 1, verse 8. It says, he's not the light. John, you're not the light. Verse 20, he's not the Christ. Verse 21, he's not Elijah or a prophet. Verse 23, he is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Verse 27, he says, I am not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And in chapter 3, we get a clearer picture of who John is and who his identity really is in. 
John's disciples, they come to him. They're concerned about shrinking crowds. They're not as big as they used to be. They're concerned about Jesus' growing crowds. And John's response gives us great insight into who he is. Look at verse 29. John calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. What John says here is basically he is the first century equivalent to the best man. That's the equivalent to the best man at a wedding. Now, in our day, the best man only has two jobs. One, plan the bachelor party. Two, don't lose the ring, man. Come on, right? I mean, you only had one job. I mean, come on, right? You ever been to a wedding? No, I don't know where the, I don't know where the ring is at, right? Don't lose the ring. That's the best man's job. If you can do that, you've sealed the deal. Great job. You might even give a, a speech, but for God's sake, make it good, right? In Jesus' day, the friend of the bridegroom has a much larger role than that. He is going to prepare everything for the wedding in that day. He's going to invite the guest. He's going to stuff the envelopes. He's going he's to plan the whole event out. Then when the wedding day comes, he's going to oversee the event, and he's going to say, man, if I do that, it is mission accomplished, because what it really comes down to is seeing the wedding come off problem-free, and that is a mission-accomplished event for him. He just wants to see the bride and the bridegroom happy, everything going well, and then what he wants to do in that moment is he wants to come, and he wants to stand in the background as the bride and the bridegroom take center stage. I've worked this hard to this point to get it to this, and now what I'm going to do is I'm going to withdraw, and I'm going to pull off over here while the bride and the bridegroom have the stage and have the light. And John, when he comes, he says, you know what, that's me. When it comes to Jesus, my role is that I'm the friend of the bridegroom, and that is my job. And verse 30 says, he must increase and I must decrease. So who is John? He's a friend of the bridegroom. Who is John? He's the one that desires to decrease so that Jesus will increase. You realize leading up to the event, it's the friend of the bridegroom that you see. The one you hear from, the one you talk to, the one you send your RSVP to. It's the friend of the bridegroom. It's the one you're interacting with all the way up to this huge event. But when the bridegroom arrives, when the wedding day comes, it becomes very, very apparent that it really was never about the friend of the bridegroom in the first place. It wasn't about him at all. It's about the bridegroom. It's about the bride. It's about the day of the wedding. And it was really about Jesus all along. Now Jesus has come on the scene and he's baptizing and his ministry is growing. And he's preaching, he's teaching, and the crowds are, are following. And what he's done is he's totally eclipsed John. And what we see in these opening verses is John has the humility to step out of the way and push Jesus to the forefront. And I'm going to just say this, that, you know, one of, uh, one of the best definitions I found of humility is this, is to know your place. Humility is knowing your place. That John said, my job is not to stand here. My job is I've done all the preparation and now it is about Jesus, and I'm okay 
was standing over here out of the light. I've done the preparation. I've done what I'm called to do, and I am okay with that. I'm not the Savior. He is. I'm not the Messiah. He is. I'm, I'm the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the groom, bridegroom, and so he must increase, and so I must decrease. I love what A.W. Tozer wrote, and I'd encourage you, read about anything you can get that A.W. Tozer ever wrote. He said this, I've met two classes of Christians, the proud who imagine they are humble and the humble who are afraid they are proud. There should be a third class, the self-forgetful who leave the whole thing in the hands of Christ and refuse to waste any time trying to make themselves good and humble. They will reach the goal far ahead of the rest of us. Wow. This is John. This is a picture of radical self-forgetfulness. Have you ever noticed this, that when you're walking with someone who's, who's close to Jesus, that you're able to look right past them and see Jesus? Wow. Like when you're walking with someone in your relationship with them and you know them and you know that they know Christ, but, but you know that someone knows Jesus and is so close to Jesus and you find out so quickly, it's not about me, it's about him. It's about Jesus. It's about him so that their life is so oriented around Jesus' ministry and they're talking about Jesus and they're exalting Jesus and about pushing Jesus to the forefront while they move back and they allow Jesus to have the main stage and you don't have to guess, it's about Jesus which raises the question for everyone here this morning and I just wonder, what would people say about your life today? What would people say about my life today, really, honestly, we could ask that question about each of ourselves today, that I realize this, that God has put me in this position for a reason and a season, and I'm here to do what he's called me to do, but let me tell you something, I know one thing, that if I ever take the stage in the light over Christ, he will take me out. What do people see when they see you? Are they able to look past you or are you so much in the picture they can't see anything else? Is it hard to see Jesus in your attitude and your walk? Is it hard to see Jesus in your actions because I'm so concerned about me, I'm so caught up in my world and my preferences and my desires that it really gets difficult to see Jesus? When people look to John, the disciples come to John, he willingly says, you know what, it's not about me. It isn't. Because I'm the one that's called to decrease, and Jesus is the one that will increase. And I'm not the bridegroom, but I'm a friend of the bridegroom, and I'm the one in the background, and he's the one in the foreground, and I'm not Christ. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's John. His identity is wrapped up in Jesus completely. So that's John. He's a friend of the bridegroom. Then Jesus, well, who is he? Well, that's a huge question that we can't answer all today, but we get a glimpse of who he is inside of this. And who is Jesus? First, I think it's important to note that John's response to who Jesus is is totally different than what Nicodemus has to say. That we talked about last week, it's totally different. It's in direct opposite because Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night so that nobody will see him. He's a little embarrassed. He's got a lot at stake. He's 
persistent. He's got some nagging questions, and he wonders about eternal life, and he wonders about the kingdom of God, and this was the most respected teacher in all of Israel, Nicodemus, besides Jesus, and he feels like something's missing in his life. He knows there is. There's a nagging in him. There's a gnawing. And he's absolutely stunned when he has a conversation with Jesus, when he comes to him at night. And Jesus says, you know what? It really boils down to what you do with me. It really boils down to this. Are you decreasing so that I can increase? You've got to lay down, Nicodemus, all your spiritual merit badges, all the things you've got that you think that bring you favor, and I'm willing to bring you favor, and I'm willing to bring you my grace and my mercy, and that you would just lay down all these other things that you're trying to achieve to get that. And when Nicodemus hears this, he's absolutely stunned. The issue is we come to Jesus, we understand this, that when you come to this, that we have to know that. Lost people don't understand who Jesus is. Are you with me today? Let's quit trying to hold the world that doesn't know Jesus to spiritual standards. Can I hear an amen? Quit being so shocked that the non-believer sins. I don't know about you. I sin too. How about you? Right? By grace. Let's quit trying to hold the world to these standards that really the truth isn't in them. That's why Paul says they're darkened in their understanding. we got to stop doing that. So we shouldn't be surprised at Nicodemus' response because we know who he's talking to. He hears about him. He's seen him from a distance, but he doesn't really know him. Most people think Jesus is a, he's a, he's an egomaniac. Why? Because Jesus demands everything. That's why they're thinking Wow, you can really ask for that, Jesus? You want everything? That's why they think, and, and people think and say, well, he, he's got it. He's an egomaniac. He wants everything. They don't really know what's going on inside of them when their understanding is dark and that I got to give up everything to follow him. And so that's what Jesus is coming upon the scene here, and John is getting an understanding of that. And so he absolutely does want our full life and everything that is within us. And man, I'm going to tell you something. I feel like I could preach a whole nother message to the body of Christ today on this, that we are people of the word, but most people don't live the word of the Lord. We just take it at face value and we think it's just words and we're done with it rather than living our life and maneuvering our life in a way that honors the Lord through the word of God. And we wonder why things are not going well in our lives. It's because we failed to line our life up with the word of God and live the truth. Amen? We have settled for something absolutely fake. Another message. It's probably a bit obvious to people in this room who Jesus is. But in this passage, the gospel writer is not just asking, can you just paint a thumbnail sketch of who Jesus is? You know, it's important, the baby in the manger, yeah, the virgin birth, died on the cross. Those are valuable, but that's not all. That is not everything. That Jesus is so much more than that. To really know Jesus is to hold him and to treasure him above anything and everything else, period. And in John's response in this passage, he confronts this head on with not only just speaking, he lives it. 
we confront the reality of Jesus' identity from the ground floor up in our life. And if we will do that, we would realize that Jesus must increase, and so that means I must decrease. And if he gets bigger, that I get smaller. Amen, church? Jesus gets bigger, I get smaller. Wow, that is totally in opposition to what we hear in our world. No, I'm just going to keep getting bigger, man. That's how I roll. But how many can be happy with a life that says, you know what, I'm going to reorient my life to know that it's about Jesus increasing and I'm going to have to decrease. So in these final words, John the Baptist is talking here. The gospel writer picks up and says, let me tell you why John is spot on. Look at verses 31 through 36 with me. Who is Jesus? Why should I decrease so that he can increase? Here are six reasons that the gospel writer puts right here. Here is the reason, he said, why you and I should decrease so that Jesus can increase. And, and number one is he is above all. Can you say all? He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now that about solves it all. Why should he increase? Because he's over everything. He's at the top. He's above everything. And let me tell you something. Whatever's at the top of your life is in the center of your life. Whatever's at the top has the center priority. That's what runs your life. Whatever's at the top has the center. And we make decisions, and we don't make decisions from that. And so he is above all. The second reason, he knows what no one else knows. Boy, that's so true. Next verse. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one has received his testimony. He knows. That's why we should decrease, and he should increase, because he knows everything everything. I don't know everything. Matter of fact, I don't know much. Three, his words are God's words. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. God is what? God is true. What is it, church? He is. For he whom God has sent utters the word of God, 33 and 34. Jesus is speaking the very words of God his words are God's words. You never have to wonder whether God's words and Jesus' words match up. His words are God's words. That's another reason for us to decrease so that he can increase. Number four, he's the giver of the Holy Spirit. How many of you are thankful for the Holy Spirit? Amen, I am. He gives the Spirit without measure. Man, thank you, Lord. He gives the Holy Spirit without measure. Anything you receive through the work of the Holy Spirit proceeds from Jesus. He gives the Holy Spirit. The Father gave the Son. The Son gives the Holy Spirit. I love that. We need to know that. Jesus said, I'm leaving this earth. I give you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. That's what he is saying. I'm giving you this. He's the giver of the Holy Spirit. That's why we should decrease so that he can increase. Number five, he owns it all. The Father loves the Son. He's given all things into his hand. He owns everything. 
He owns everything. Church, he owns everything. Church, he owns everything. I just want to remind us in the world we live in that we think we own everything. God owns absolutely everything today in your life. Woo, man. He owns everything. That's why John's disciples come to him and said, hey, look. Look at the people going to him. Look at his ministry is growing and ours is shrinking. Aren't you worried? Aren't you concerned? I mean, come on now. I mean, we used to be the big deal. But look at John verse 27. He says, listen, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. That Jesus owns everything. Jesus owns our success today. Jesus owns our resources today. Jesus owns our life today. Jesus owns everything today. That's a great reason for every single one of us to decrease so that he can increase, amen? He owns it all. He owns our relationships. He owns it all. He owns it all. So that's another reason you should decrease so that he can increase. And then the sixth one is it's only by believing in him Jesus, that any person receives eternal life. That's what he's saying. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. These are strong words. That if we want to be right with God, and if we want to spend eternity with him, that happens only one way. Eternal life comes through believing in Jesus, trusting, embracing Jesus for sin, period. That's it. And if you haven't done that, what he says is, the wrath of God remains on you, but it doesn't have to stay on you. If you would trust him and you would trust his righteousness and you would embrace him and you would stand before him and receive his love and you would receive his mercy, receive his grace, this is who Jesus is. This is why each and every one of us must decrease so that Jesus can increase. But it's the third question that's the real kicker. It's the third question that gets to the heart of it. What's John's response as his prominent decreases, his prominence is going down, and he watches the fame increase of Jesus. How will John respond? We have to pause and ask why. Why at this point did the gospel writer bring John back into the story because he was in chapter 1? And the gospel writer is leaving out many other things because there's so many other stories, right? He's being selective for a reason. Why? Well, John 21, 25 brings the clarity, clarity. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did a lot. John the writer brings John the Baptist back on to the scene. But for what reason? Just to humble himself again? He's not playing the broken record. Instead, this scene, there are new emotions being expressed. There are new thoughts that are being uttered. And John the Baptist is reflecting the right response to what Jesus said to Nicodemus earlier in the chapter. Nicodemus hears about Jesus. Lay down all your spiritual merit badges, Nicodemus. And he's thinking, well, how can these things be? John the Baptist sees that 
and hears it and embraces the Lord. He sees Jesus increasing and he sees himself decreasing and at the sight of that, he rejoices. Look at how the 29th verse emphasizes the result of John the Baptist's life. The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him greatly, rejoice greatly at the bridegroom, his voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. These are such strong words. Great joy, complete joy, over-the-top joy that's happening. What's the source of all of this joy? It's Jesus increasing and me decreasing. What? Come on, put it in your context today. There are people in this room today, you may have come in here with a smile, but you don't have the joy of the Lord. I'm not trying to judge your heart. Some of you came in this room, you have the joy of the Lord. That's great. It's obvious and it's evident in your life. But if you were to look down deep in your life today, that there's so many people here in the sound of my voice, wherever you may be, your joy is not even fulfilling you or sustaining you. You're holding on to so many other things and you wonder why you are in the situation and the circumstance you're in. And here we see John, he comes upon the scene and he says, what's the source of this joy? Jesus increasing so that I have to decrease. Jesus is getting bigger. That's me being smaller. What does that produce? Joy. Can somebody say joy? Remind, I want to just remind you, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not your knowledge. It's not your titles. It's not your house. It's not your clothes. It's not any of those things. It's the joy of the Lord that will be your strength that will last us and will help us through and will fulfill us and will sustain us. And the world needs to see the body of Christ being joyful. Come on, amen? Rather than depressed and discouraged all the time. Those are real feelings. I get that. But let me tell you something. It's Jesus getting bigger. You got to understand that. You can't increase at the same time that Jesus is increasing. When Jesus increases, which he has and he needs to, you and I are called to decrease our life. Decrease, decrease. You and I buy into the lie where joy and satisfaction is, we find there's ways just to prop up our self-image to define our identity by comparing ourselves, pursuing our career, doing all that so that joy, we hope, will be on the other end. John's response is so exactly opposite. Just for the record, Jesus said about John, he's the greatest man born among women. Well, that guy had something to boast about. Jesus said that about you? This guy's the greatest man born among women. What? John had a lot to boast about. And yes, he says, you know what? Yet this, I will become smaller so that my Lord can become bigger. The result of this joy is mine in that, and now I am complete. God's goal is always completeness. It's always wholeness. It always is. It always is. So, it's, so, so more Jesus, more joy. More Jesus, more joy today. So in our lives, where do you think joy comes from? Where are you putting your stock in today to bring you joy and you bring you satisfaction? The truth is this, to the degree that your life is all about you, your joy will diminish. But when Christ is in first place, you're fine with saying, that's fine. I'm good with being second. 
I'm good with being third. I'm good with being tenth. I'm good with being back here. I'm okay because Jesus is increasing. And I'm okay if I'm just decreasing because that's what he's called me to do. And I'm just going to be obedient to that. And when I do that, my joy will be complete. My joy will be fulfilled. My joy inside of you. Who's number one in your life today? Who's number one in your life today? Come on, come on, come on. Get, get below the surface today. Come on, get into something deeper. No, who is number one? one in your life to do and you, inside of your life today what's at the top is what's in the middle John says I've reoriented, reoriented my life to say no no let me tell you something I'm a friend of you Jesus I'm, I'm the bri- you're the bridegroom and I'm just going to come back here and I'm going to stand I'm a friend of yours and I'm going to make you look good because that's what you have called me to do and let me just tell you something today church this because this was in my spirit my prayer time this morning I just give this to you listen if you're passionate about Jesus you have to be passionate about the church doesn't preach in these days well, Jesus, I'm passionate about you, but I don't want much to do with church. That is the bride of Christ, and he gave his life for it. If you're passionate about Jesus, you have to be passionate about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in these days. Come on, church. Come on. I'm an on-again, off-again believer. Jesus died for the church. That is his bride. He gave himself for us. If you're passionate about Jesus, you have to be passionate about the church. Come on. Quit wavering. Quit wavering, church. If you're passionate about Jesus, you're passionate about the church. You'll give your life to it. Now, that doesn't sell, does it? I got other stuff. I got my stuff. It's my money. It's my time. No, it's not. We all will find out real soon that it's all his anyways. When you spend your time, your money, use your words, that they must be constantly and continually about Jesus. Is your marriage about Jesus or is your marriage about you? So John embraced the decrease so Jesus could increase. He embraced self-forgetfulness. That's the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be. Like it or not. Do it or not. But the only way you and I are going to find joy is by decreasing. So that Jesus can increase. Come on, let's be a church that decreases so that Jesus can increase through us. I'm going to give that to us as a church, as a body today, that you would pray about that. Where's an area that you can step out of the light and be okay with it? I've told the Lord before, God, I don't even know how you called me to do this. Chris and I have had many conversations. We could do other things, Lord, if you want us to, but if this is where you want us, that's great. It should be the same thing in our own life. God, I'm okay with whatever. I'm okay with 10th place. I'm okay back here in the last. I'm okay because, hey, if I'm just telling other people about you, Lord, that's the main thing of why you've put me on this earth. People to Jesus, we're friends of the bridegroom, for God's sake. 
Let's be people that are content with that rather than other things. Image. Looks. I think we're all grown up enough to know that we all go through difficulties. We all go through challenges. We all know we're sinners saved by God's grace. We're not fooling each other. We're not fooling God. Promises, we don't have to stay under the wrath of God. It remains, but we don't have to stay that way. We can come and find our joy that's complete in Him and Him alone today. Come on, would you find that today? Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Would you find that today? Father, I sense you speaking to the heart of your people in this room right now, Lord. To reorient our lives in a way so that, God, we die to ourselves and we decrease so that you can increase. It's not about us. You care. You, you, that's not a shameful statement. It's, you, you care for us. You died for us. But, Lord the end of this day, at the end of our life, God, we just know it is about you and it's what you've called us to do. Help us to die today to the things we keep wanting to do that rejects you, that keeps us, our self-image, our, our own, you know, giftings in, in, in the limelight, Lord, rather than just saying, I'm okay with stepping out of that and saying, Lord, just go ahead. And it's through it, God, that we will find a supernatural peace and a joy that will complete us. So, Lord, I thank you for doing that. And so, Lord, I humbly offer this church back to you again today to do your work in us, Lord, again and again and again, Lord, so that you can receive the praise and the glory of our lives. I pray this in your mighty name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to dismiss you on this song. You want to spend time at the altars. You want to spend time needing prayer. We're here. God bless you and have a wonderful week in Christ. Next week, John chapter 4.